Well, good morning again. We continue on our vitality pathway and looking at the marks of a healthy and missional church. One of the things a healthy missional church does is spread the gospel of Christ. And if you've never been to Ecuador, there's an opportunity for you. There's a mission trip about ready to go next summer. Quito is an amazing city. It's at 9,000 feet. The sun rises every day all year long at 6 o'clock in the morning, and it sets every night all year long at 6 o'clock at night. You can set your time by it. And because it's so high, even though it's warm, there are no bugs. None. It's amazing. What a great opportunity and what a wonderful work of mission that goes on there and that our group will be doing this summer. So if you're thinking about it still, there's a good opportunity for you to sign up and and be a part of the mission trip that we could be going to Ecuador. Today's mark for a healthy missional church is that healthy missional churches transform communities through compassion, mercy, and justice. The symbol is the olive branch. Peace, wholeness, relationship, restoration, reconciliation, all done with this image of the olive branch. And this morning, I'm privileged to have sitting alongside me one of my colleagues in ministry, an ordained covenant pastor, Rich Cudmore, who happens to be one of the chaplains at Covenant Village of Cromwell. We've known each other for quite a while, though he took off from America for a period of time. He'll tell you a little bit about that later on. But we're going to be sharing the story. I'm going to be doing the biblical part. He's going to be doing the practical, wonderful story part, the application part from his own life experience. But we're glad that he's here, and uh, we're always glad when you're here, and glad that you've been a part of this church for a while. To launch the message, I'd like you to listen carefully to the prophet Micah. What he speaks about is something that was established way back in the days of Moses and the freeing of the children of Israel from slavery in Egypt, and you'll hear reference to it as we read. But it's also practical for us as the Church of Jesus Christ. So listen to these words from Micah 6, 1 through 8. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt. I redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak king of Moab plotted and what Balaam son of Beor answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. This is the reading of God's holy and true word. 
May we live by it. Micah grew up, he lived in a village about 20 miles to the southwest of Jerusalem. He was a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Hosea. Israel needed lots of prophets, just as we all need lots of help with following Christ. And as a literary device, the prophet Micah used the setting of a court to make his prophecies in what's called the book of Micah. The first two chapters of this brief writing are the trial of the capitals of Israel and Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel, Samaria, was the capital. The southern kingdom of Judah, Jerusalem, was its capital. In chapters 3 through 5 is the trial of the leaders of each of those kingdoms. And the last two chapters from which we took the reading today, chapter 6, contain the trial of the entire Hebrew people. So we begin by looking at the text. The court is in session. The cities have been tried, the leaders have been tried, and now it's the people. Micah is speaking at the beginning of this reading as though he is God. He is speaking on God's behalf to the people. Two questions are being asked. They're rhetorical. It's like when my wife asks me a question and she does not want a response. She wants me to know exactly what she meant. No questions asked. Rhetorical. God says, what have I done to you? What have I done to you? In other words, implying that God has treated the people badly. And the second question, also rhetorical, how have I burdened you? Implying that God's demands upon them have been burdensome. We don't have the court transcript. This is all the language that we have. But these questions imply that God has made life difficult according to the people's perspective. And they are using that burdening, those things that God has treated them badly about, as excuses for their bad behavior. We're always looking for excuses for bad behavior, are we not? Except when it's other people. But when it's us, we look for the way out. God does not give the people an opportunity to answer. Instead, God reminds the people of all the things that he's done. Verse 4, I redeemed you from slavery in Egypt. I gave you strong leaders, both women and men. In verse 5, I gave you a prophet's blessing. When the king told the prophet to curse you, he blessed you anyway. I brought you through the Jordan from our last encampment outside the promised land to our first encampment inside the land of promise. There is silence. There's a pondering by the people. They had forgotten all that God had done in their behalf. God redeemed, gave them leaders, blessed them, and fulfilled his promise to bring them into the promised land. Micah now speaks as though he is the people. The courtroom is still the setting, but the people who are on trial are now pondering. He speaks as the voice of the people. And he begins in verse 6 with a question. With what shall I come before the Lord? In other words, what can give me access to God? What must I do? Micah ponders three possible responses. 
Each one builds in intensity on the other. We begin. Perhaps a burnt offering. A burnt offering included repentance, the admission of guilt, and the acceptable of an animal as paying for my sins. And you did it by laying your hands on the head of that animal as it is slaughtered, that this animal is really getting what you deserve. And then it is burned in a fragrant aroma to the Lord. It included submission and full surrender to God. God is the object of the burnt offering, and it is given in order to be forgiven by God. And of the burnt offerings, and there are many kinds of burnt offerings given to us in the book of Leviticus, this was the most costly of the burnt offerings. It was a year-old prize calf, the greatest of the prescribed sacrifices, usually reserved for the wealthier people, The poorer people didn't have calves to be able to offer, but it was costly, very costly. The musing continues from a burnt offering to perhaps thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil. If one costly offering is not enough, how about thousands of them? See how it's ramping up? The need and perhaps the desire to be redeemed has intensified as the people have pondered their behavior and all that God has done. The price of my sin, the cost of the offering intensifies as well. Some would say, well, that's hyperbole. Well, it could be. But don't we try to find what is necessary to have a relationship with someone significant, including God? And we still have this notion that there's something we can do to make it happen, that it's up to us. And that's what these people are musing, and the prophet Micah is identifying that before them. And then he goes to the third musing. Well, perhaps my firstborn. Hmm. There were times I thought about that. Well, more importantly, there were times my mother thought about that because I was the oldest, but not seriously, not really. But what if I gave my firstborn? Would it make it possible for me to come before God? Besides, look what Abraham did. Abraham was willing to give up his son, Isaac. God said, you don't have to do that finally, and stopped it from happening. But he was willing to do that when God provided All of these musings of Micah before the people in the courtroom deal with redemption, what God alone provides. The part we people play in redemption is a genuine repentance for sin, proved genuine by a complete admission of guilt, own up to bad behavior, proved genuine by a complete restitution to those we have wronged, That's a part of redemption that gets overlooked so often in our world. Making right what I did wrong, if it can be made right. Proved genuine by a costly offering to God. What God wants is us to give ourselves, all of us. Not what I can do, not what I can say, not my firstborn, not a calf, not a lot of oil, but me. And God's smart enough to know that when he gets us, he gets all the other stuff too because it comes with us. That's part of who we are. 
This would have been a good place for Micah to stop. It would have been enough, but it wasn't. He's a prophet. Prophets go deeper. The scene changes once again, and Micah now becomes the voice of God's prophet to the people. Both Micah and God are more concerned about how we live in relationship than they are about the things we do. Certainly, the restoration is necessary. But what is my life to be about once I've owned up to who I really have been and God has restored me? What's the next step? How am I to live as God's forgiven and redeemed person in the world? Verse 8, which is the pinnacle of his entire book, gives us the message. God has showed you, O mortal, what is good. What does the Lord require of us? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. To act justly. Listen carefully. When it comes to living in relationship with people in general, act justly. If we were to read on in Micah's prophecy, we'd discover him speaking about against false measures and weights used by merchants. We'd find him speaking out against lying tongues of the leadership of their cities. How contemporary are these for our day? Don't we find enticing advertisements that fail to describe merchandise adequately and the lying of consumers who've used and abused products and then return them asking for full refunds? You know how it works. Isn't that what he's talking about? It is. I had a good friend many years ago, whenever he bought a pair of shoes, he put those overshoes over them, and for up to two weeks he would wear those shoes everywhere he went to make sure that they really are the best, most comfortable shoes he's ever had. And if they weren't, he would take the overshoes off, there'd be no scuff on the sole, there'd no, no scuff on the heel, and he'd take them back for a full refund. He's still my friend. But how ethical is that? And if we do it in little things, what's going to happen when it spills over into medium size or big things? In our lifetime, the danger of good is called evil and evil is called good has sadly become a reality. And we live in a culture where we're so surrounded by that that it certainly impacts us and may infect us as well. Micah is calling God's people, the people of Israel, and I think the church today, to act justly. To act justly is to know God's boundary. Do not give false witness. In other words, don't lie. He's calling us to be people of veracity, truth speakers. Nothing less than the truth, no withholding of truth. And nothing more than the truth, no embellishing or exaggerating the truth. An example, I'm a Cubs fan. You're going to hear that probably relatively often from me because I'm truly a Cubs fan. And I want to tell you, an example of this would be, you don't know how good my Cubs really are. Do you know that they are now leading the Central Division? And they have not lost a game since the wild card. Of course, they haven't played and the season hasn't started. So I've taken it and just twisted it a little bit to give you a flavor of how subtle this lack of truth can be in our lives and in our world. Not to point fingers at other people, but to evaluate what's going on in us. What is our tongue doing? What are we trying to get out? And are we using it with real truth or not? 
To act justly is to know God's boundary. Do not covet. He's calling us to be a people who are content with what what he's provided. Are you content with what he's provided for you? I'm talking about our giftedness, our circumstances, our resources, our possessions. Contentment is the call of not coveting. Oh God, help us to become content, satisfied, willing to see that you're giving us this or keeping us from that for a reason. Help us to learn. Help us to trust in you. As he said to the Apostle Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. What else do you really need? Micah's message speaks about the persons and individuals of his day, but it also spoke about the community. It's for our corporate life. As a church, we are to act justly. God's call to us is to aid those who've been marginalized by culture, by religion, by economics, and all other forms where people are dismissed. God's way is to draw in, to include, to bless, not to marginalize. We're to act justly. Second, he goes on, love mercy. When it comes to relationship with people who have wronged you, People in general act justly. When it comes to relationships with people who have wronged you, love mercy. It's not really a second item. It's an expansion of the first. It's a clarification of the first. Micah is saying, in essence, acting justly toward the one who has done wrong or with whom you have a complaint is to show them mercy. In the Hebrew, chesed. I use that Hebrew word because it's almost impossible to translate chesed into any word we have in English. It's a bigger thing than that. An example, Joshua 2.12. Rahab let the Israeli spies come into Jericho. And she's hidden them in her house, and she lets them over the wall. She says to them as they're leaving, When you come and conquer Jericho, remember that I showed you chesed. Translated often mercy or love or kindness. But really it's more a sense of community. I'm on your side. We're in this together. This God of yours is the God that makes things happen. I'm in solidarity with you. Remember me when you come back and do what you said God wants done. Or to take an example from Exodus 23. If you come across your enemy's donkey or ox wandering off, be sure to return it. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you fallen down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure to help them up with it. Helping someone in need, no matter who they are, but especially if they are people who see you as an enemy or you have chosen to see them as a foe. Love mercy is to live for chesed, the wholeness of life and the wholeness of the community. And third, walk humbly. When it comes to living in relationship with God, walk humbly. Walking humbly with God is the driving force that makes it possible for us to foster community and act justly with one another. Walking humbly with God is the driving force that makes it possible for us to love mercy with our foes in particular. Walking walking humbly with God is our core life. 
fair and merciful living can only be done as we walk humbly. A church that walks humbly with God will be a church that is marked by compassion, mercy, and justice because it will be doing what God does and it will be doing it God's way. That is a mark of a healthy and missional church. Good morning. Good morning. Is this working? Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Keep going. Keep talking. Do I have to turn something on? Yes. Good morning. Hello. Okay, now we're there. <laughs> Good morning. My name is Richard Cudmore. Uh, I am one of the chaplains of Covenant Village. Uh, there are two full-time chaplains there, Mary Miller and myself. And we have been there, or my family and I have been here just over two years, almost two and a half years. And so we've been coming to this church uh, as part of uh, who we are in identifying. You may know uh, my kids. I have four teenagers sitting over in the pews there. They're the tall blondes. And um, my wife is also part of this church, but um, she's been part of some of the music groups. But she is also an ordained pastor, and she is serving up in Pilgrim Covenant Church in Granby, Connecticut right now, and so that's probably why you don't uh, see her around here very much. So as two people that have been in ministry, when we first got married, we just thought we would uh, graduate from seminary and we would find a church that would want both of us and we would do ministry together. Uh, Fortunately, that happened in Naugatuck, Connecticut for a little while, but that was the only time that we were able to be together. And so we realized that if we're going to do ministry and feel fulfilled, we need to expand our understanding of what ministry is. And so as we looked for different churches, we also looked to see if there was a hospital or a prison or a school or something that was in the area that one of us may find employment in. In 2010, my family went to Sweden. Uh, My wife is Swedish, and we served over there. My wife uh, had a church, and she was uh, pastoring that church. And so my kids got thrown into the Swedish school system and learned Swedish in about six months. And I went to Swedish school to learn Swedish, and it took me about two years to get probably half of what my kids know. Um, a couple other things that I did there. I was a uh, volunteer. Well, I wasn't a volunteer, but I was helping a man who was in a wheelchair as a personal assistant to him. And the other job that I had, I was a chaplain in the prison system in Sweden. And uh, for me, it was a remarkable experience. As I was preparing myself to get ready for this ministry and, and to allow God to use me, I, uh, the thought that came coming to me over and over again is that we are all made in the image of God. And because of that, we all have self-worth. We are all valuable, and we can all be redeemed. And I needed to remind myself that almost daily as I went into this prison system and um, met with most, well, it was all men. 
The prison itself was about eight different buildings. You had to sign in and get buzzed in. Every single door that you walked through, you needed to either punch in a code if you were by yourself, or if you had some of the prisoners, you had to push a button and let control let you through. So it was uh, very oppressive in some ways. There were underground tunnels that made you go from one room or one building to the other building. And uh, there were three of us that were chaplains there. Um, Much of what we did was uh, chaplain services. We would pray with uh, the inmates. We would also meet with them one-on-one. And uh, that's most of what I did, was meet with them and just talk about where they are in life and, and their prayer life and their, their life situation. Now, I wear this today because this is what I wore as a kind of standard uniform. And obviously, you notice right away that the collar is not something that we see in the Protestant churches. But over in Sweden, it's very common, and that's what they wear. And it was remarkable... Um, how quickly you would get to be able to read people in that system. Because they would see that I had the collar, and so you walk into a room, and some of them would come up right away, and they would shake your hand, and they would greet you, and they would want to know how they could get together and how they could go to chapel services. There would be others that would see you out of the corner of their eye, and they would turn around, and they wouldn't even acknowledge your presence there. And they wanted nothing to do with you. And for me, it felt almost like a spiritual battle that you could sense uh, some of the hostility that they had. We weren't allowed to carry weapons there, so I had something that was very similar to this. It was a little um, uh, contraption that had a, a wonderful little rope attached to it, and you attached that to your pants as well. And if you ever got into a situation that you were in trouble, you would pull that rope, and security would come. Now, I know that this is true, Because part of what we would do is, as we were meeting with uh, the criminals, we would um, often have coffee or cookies or something like that as we were talking with them. And so one day I was clearing that out, and so I had my hands full of a coffee pot and a tray of cookies. And I was going to walk out the door, and I opened the door, and I turned around, and then the door got caught on that string and pulled it. And within 30 seconds or so, there were 50 people in this hallway just making sure everything was okay. And I'm standing there with coffee and cookies saying, it's okay, it's okay, nothing, it just, I, the door, it was nothing, it's okay. And they had to check on the person that I was meeting with. They had to check on me, make sure I was okay. Um, it took about a half an hour to clear all that up. It was very humiliating. Um, But uh, we got through it, and I'm glad to know that those little systems worked. There was one time that uh, I was part of a, a Bible study, and it was so fascinating because there were about five or six guys in there, and only two of them spoke English. And I did this Bible study in English because it was easier for me. And so I would share a little bit, and then they would understand it, and then one guy would speak to two other guys in a different language, and this guy would speak to the other two guys in a different language. And so we had about four different languages with six guys in a Bible study. It was so fascinating and rewarding and energizing. But obviously, um, all the guys that were there were in there for all sorts of reasons. Some of them were, got, were caught because they were trafficking drugs. 
Others had killed somebody, and so they're there for life. And so um, these are hard people. These are extremely broken people, and they have very, very difficult um, lives and life situations. One of the guys that I got to know really well, his name was Jan, and he was my height, so he was over six foot, and he was about twice the size of me this way. This way. And he was an enforcer for one of the gangs in, in Sweden. And so when he was on the streets, he had a bulletproof vest and he had a uh, pistol with him. Um, he also took a huge amount of steroids and he did drugs and he drank a lot. Uh, he was sharing with me one day that he was having a few drinks with friends. And so I just casually asked him, well, how much is a few drinks? And he said, well, about eight or nine. And so you understand their, their understanding of what they were doing and how they were consuming things. Well, to be an enforcer, to be muscle on the street, you have to be tough. And he was in a dance hall one night, and he was dancing with a pretty girl, and this pretty girl had a boyfriend. And he came over and pushed him, and he knew that this yawn was big, so he had five of his friends behind him. And Jan was telling me, the first thing that I thought of while I'm laying on the floor there is I'm going to get up and kill every single one of them. He ended up putting each of them into the hospital. And as he's telling the story, he said, That's, who thinks like that? That is crazy. Nobody normally thinks that they're going to beat people up like that and really do it. But the drugs and the steroids and the hormones and everything that was going on was not only making him stronger and bigger, but it was affecting the way that he even perceived the world around him. As he was talking with me, the reason why he was there is most of the guys that I talked with were there because of domestic abuse. And so... He not only was violent out on the streets, but when he started to not be able to handle things at home, he took it out on his girlfriend. And he was extremely embarrassed and regretful and filled with guilt when he took that violence into his house. And because he was in the prison system, he was clean or cleaner and he could kind of start to recognize this. And the guilt and the shame and forgiveness and all these things started to um, come out. And that was much of what I was processing with him. And so what I wanted to share with you this morning is that those cases, those people, are extremely difficult because there is violence and there is anger and there is brokenness there. But there's also this sense of regret and remorse and wanting to be forgiven, and understanding that what they were doing is not what they wanted to be. And so it was helpful for me to remember that they too can be redeemed. And I knew that I wasn't going to fix everybody, but I tried to do the best that I could in that situation and for that time. He actually got led out and um, bought a, uh, an apartment or was renting an apartment in the same town that we were living in. And I saw him in the grocery store one day. And he saw me, ran over and gave me a big bear hug and lifted me up off the ground. And he's like, how you doing? And um, I told the, the, the first um, worship that uh, if you understand who Gronk is, 
from the New England Patriots, that big tight end guy. This is that guy. Um, you know, a big, strong kid is who he was. He ended up going back up to um, Stockholm because uh, he was causing too much trouble in the little town that we were, and everybody knew who he was. So I share all this with you this morning to share a little bit about my history and about interacting with people, but how do we go about it with a church? How do we start to recognize the ministries and care for people around us? Um, two quick things. Uh, if you have any kids or grandkids that went to Chick this summer, um, kids are already starting to be immersed and understand how do we do ministry of um, mercy, justice, and compassion. We had breakout sessions in the mornings that were teaching sessions, and one of the mornings was about prison ministry and um, incarceration and immigration. And there were other ministry avenues that the kids got to explore and to live into a little bit. The other thing that I'll mention is that um, North Park Theological Seminary, which is connected to our denomination, is now offering a um, certificate and maybe even graduate work in transformative, transformational justice. And what is happening is that seminary students can sign up and take a course. It's half free people, and half of the people are in the prison system. So they go to the prison to teach a course on justice. And so um, not only those of us that are part of the church, but even those that are part of the prison community are learning how to be better people and to serve their community in there. And some of them will never get out of the prison system. And so they will serve and uh, do things there. Uh, Craig and I were talking earlier, and um, there are statistics that are showing that the fastest-growing Christian population in America is within the prison system, which is pretty amazing. And so today I share this story with you so that we can think about what are ways that we can minister to people? And it may not be with prisons, but it may be with prisons. But it could be with things of uh, domestic abuse or homelessness or Adelbrook is in Cromwell and they deal with kids with autism. Or we could deal with health care issues or environmental justice or poverty or racism. And part of what we do as a church is we recognize the excitement and where the Spirit is moving us. Now, I know that uh, many of us come to church because we are broken and we need to be healed and we need to know that we are safe. And so when you are here, get that safety, get that recognition, have that community around you. But for those of you that are part of this community that are doing well and are looking for more, I challenge you. Maybe you're like, yeah, where do I start? Sign me up. Start to talk to some of our leadership and because part of the passion that we have and part of the energy that we have as a community will help us understand what our next step is and where we go to serve others in our community. Amen.